Would you uh, join with me in praying? Father God, thank you, Lord, that we can uh, sit under your word today, Father. I pray that you would uh, teach us um, more about yourself and more about our hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a new series today, and we're looking at metaphors. And uh, as this is the first one, we're going to be doing metaphors all the way up to Christmas, but this is the first one, so I thought uh, we'd go through some kind of basic principles about what metaphors are. So, firstly, metaphors state that something is something else. So it's different to similes, which say that something is like. So, okay, we got that. Um, secondly, metaphors are a collision of ideas. Um, they're ideas that don't necessarily fit together, but they're, they're put together. Um, so here's a few examples of some classic metaphors. Life is a highway. All right. Got white skin, got assassin's eyes. I'm looking up into the sapphire-tinted skies. We've got a lot of Bob Dylan today. Um, I like this one. Uh, if wits were pins, the man would be a veritable hedgehog. That was fun to say. Oh, here we go. Because, baby, you're a firework. Come in, show them what you're worth. Make them go, oh, 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 as you shoot across the sky. Very deep, from Katy Perry. Um, so in its most basic form, uh, metaphors are a collision between ideas that don't belong together. It jams them together and leaves us to struggle with the consequences. Uh, this is a book I love called Writing Better Lyrics. Um, uh, and I, I've got a lot of my information about metaphors from Pat Patterson. So I'm just going to go a little bit nerdier. Next level of metaphor. Uh, there's actually three different types. Um, we've got the expressed identity metaphor. And that asserts identity between two nouns, like fear is a shadow. Uh, we have a qualifying metaphor, which is adjectives to qualify nouns and adverbs to qualify verbs, e.g. hasty clouds. Thirdly, verbal metaphors. Uh, they're formed by conflict between the verb and its subject. Cloud sail, or he tortured his clutch. All right, so you feel like you're back in English class at school? All right, we can move on. But what's the purpose of metaphors? Why do we use them? Uh, well, metaphors allow us to connect our emotions to truths. Um, this is why they're so common in song and in songwriting is because like, uh, an okay song will just tell you a story, but a really good lyric will make you feel and place yourself in the story. And you might have a favorite song, and you've known that to be true. When you hear the song, you are in the story. And uh, metaphors can be really useful in connecting our emotions to that. Um, Aristotle said, the ability to see one thing as another is the only truly creative human act. Most of us have the creative spark to make metaphors, we just need to train ourselves a bit and direct our energy properly. So uh, there's a bit of encouragement. Jack mentioned before, if you're feeling creative, uh, there's a bit of encouragement from Aristotle to write some metaphors. And uh, as we look towards doing some, a summer album next year, that could be super handy. Um, so we see that metaphors are a uniquely human thing. They're given to us uh, so we can make beautiful art with words and that we can help people feel truths with their emotions. So it's no surprise then that the Bible uh, uses metaphors a lot. And over the next few weeks, that's what we're going to be looking through, um, all the different ways that the Bible uses metaphors. But today we're looking at zoo. 
Um, I also found this intriguing when I was given the topic um, for a talk. And uh, I thought it'd be good uh, to do that Bob Dylan song to get us in the animal mindset, get us in an animal vibe today, um, thinking about zoo and animals. Um, but that song's actually not a metaphor. That song's actually based on Genesis 2, which is where man obviously names all the animals. Um, and so I thought before we get into animal metaphors, it'd be really important. It's important to have a look at uh, the history of our relationship as humans to animals um, in the Bible. So, so Genesis 2, we read, uh, God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So our relationship with animals uh, initially is that we're to be rulers and caretakers. From the beginning of the creation, we see that animals and humans have an intertwined relationship. Uh, many of us here um, in the mountains experience this joy, like heaps of us have pets, um, some of us have livestock on farms, and uh, so you understand well uh, this relationship, and there's a lot of joy in caring and living alongside animals. Um, however, our relationship with animals isn't perfect. It's actually broken. Uh, it's actually damaged. Um, you know, we have dangerous spiders and snakes that bite us and send us to hospital. Um, why is it necessary to have huge fences at the zoo? It's because we don't really want to be eaten by a lion. Um, um, because the reality is that if we're not separated from dangerous animals, um, they're going to harm us. And so it's built into our being to be wary and careful about animals. Um, and I think the damaged relationships also seen in humanity's cruel treatment of animals as well. I just think of like the Melbourne Cup where, where horses die and, and just so uh, people can get drunk and gamble. It's pretty weird. And uh, so another example of the brokenness. So, and so it's like... What I want to say is that it's humans, it's, I think it's the humans' fault. It's not the animals' fault that there's brokenness. And if we look back to the garden, Adam and Eve rebelling against God and eating the fruit, the rebelling against God's clear instruction, um, is the first example of us uh, going against that and, and creating this brokenness. There's a serpent and a snake involved as well in the tempting. And, uh, and as a result of this, there becomes enmity between us and animals. We read in Genesis 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So the good relationship between uh, humans and animals is now broken. And it's not just the animals, it's actually the, the wider whole creation, the nature of Earth. It's all broken. Um, and uh, living here in the mountains, it's quite beautiful. We're quite fortunate to live here. And it's not always obvious to us that, that creation is broken up here. However, we think of wider than creatures, you know, bushfires and droughts. Um, or these are all symptoms of the brokenness of creation. And so it's in this context of the damaged, our damaged relationship with creation um, that Scripture uses animals as metaphors for teaching us about the new creation that is to come. Um, they help us understand what it's going to be like. 
So firstly, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter, chapter 11, verses 6 to 10. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So just recalling some of the things we learned earlier about metaphors, uh, do these statements work literally? Well, no. These ideas have a lot of tension for us. If we think about the wolf with a lamb, that's not safe. Uh, we know that in reality the lamb's probably going to get gobbled up. And then we have this image of a little child leading them. We don't really think of this as natural. Um, to the parents here, I think the idea of our children being in the vicinity of vicious animals is, is a terrifying thing. And that's why they have the large fences, I think, at zoos. Um, so this metaphor shows us that the new creation is a place of radical peace. And it's, in fact, far more peaceful than we can grasp. Um, it's hard not to think of the Jungle Book here. Uh, and I think the reason the Jungle Book is so appealing is that we have this idea of the little child living amongst wolves. And, uh, and we see a child dancing with a bear. And this image of peace in the Jungle Book is not a reality that we know. And so it makes a really intriguing story. Um, but whilst the peaceful relationship in the Jungle Book is intriguing, it's still limited. Uh, in the movie versions, there's the snake, Ka, which is a nemesis of Mowgli. And so this imaginary idea of peace between a child and animals only goes so far in the Jungle Book. And it actually falls far short of what Isaiah says in chapter 11. Because in Isaiah, even the long-held traditional enemy, enemy of man, the snake, has peace with humanity. I'm sure you all have uh, various snake stories from encounters with snakes. And uh, I remember as a child, I was on holidays riding a bike really fast. I came around a bend and saw a brown snake across the path and slammed on, slammed on the brakes and managed to just pull up like a foot before the brown snake. And I just froze in terror. And gradually, this snake thankfully just slithered off the path. But that feeling of, uh, of terror um, is not, does not exist in Isaiah's metaphor. We see a little child just putting its hand into snakes. There's no danger there. So it's conflicting to our minds that in the new creation, this fear will not exist at all. So Isaiah's metaphors are a collision of ideas that don't sit right in terms of our reality. And it makes no sense to us literally. However, but because we're human and we can understand metaphors, it actually allows us to understand the radical peace in the new creation. And I think one of the main reasons Isaiah uses these uh, is for us to realize that what we're living in now is actually not the natural order. We can be tempted to think that things are natural. Um, you know, we go on lovely bushwalks, explore landscapes, and we swim in the ocean. But all the while, we try not to think about the fact that people get eaten by sharks every now and then, or die from bee stings. Um, or we can think that the, uh, the occasional bushfire or drought is just part of the natural way. But actually, Isaiah is saying... 
uh, with these metaphors that that is not the natural way. We're actually supposed to live at peace with creatures. And this is how it will be in the new creation. And we see in verse 9 that on God's holy mountain there will be peace. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. But this leaves us with a problem. How do we get from our current broken creation to this new one? How's it going to come about? Well, we see the solution uh, is in verse 10. It's prophesied in verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. So this passage of Isaiah forms within a lengthy prophecy about this warrior king, often referred to as the root of Jesse. So who is the root of Jesse? Well, Jesse uh, was the father of David. Okay, uh, David, very famous man. Uh, David was the youngest of his sons. And so when, Isa- when uh, Isaiah talks about the root of Jesse, he's talking about someone that's going to come from the line of David. Okay, and this descendant of Jesse and David will unify the nations. A righteous warrior judge, he's going to come and bring justice to the earth. And it's actually kind of terrifying language that Isaiah uses. And then within this kind of intense warrior language, we get this beautiful image of peace with these metaphors. It's really interesting. Um, so who is this root of Jesse? Well, elsewhere in the Bible he's referred to. So I want to jump um, to Revelation 5, which Chanel read before. And we find out some more information about him and we get some more wonderful animal metaphors. So in Revelation 5, John the writer is facing a dilemma. He's anguished as no one can open the scroll. However, he's pointed by an elder to see that this lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed and can open the scrolls. This is the same person that's referred to in Isaiah. And he's firstly referred to as a lion... And then when John looks again, he sees a lamb. Uh, So what do we learn about this person from this lion-lamb metaphor? Well, we see here that that the root of David is both lion and the lamb simultaneously. Jesse and David's descendant, the lion of Judah, is also the lamb that was slain. And so this metaphor is very reminiscent of the Isaiah 11 passage where the lion lays down with the lamb how now it goes even further and says that the lion is also the lamb. Uh, this is an image that uh, my friend did an album um, of worship songs, and uh, he got an illustrator to try and capture this. And it's really hard because metaphors don't visually make sense. But I thought this was a fairly good effort. You get the lamb and the lion in there. But it's hard for us to picture. Um, so firstly, how can a lion also be a lamb? It doesn't compute. Um, from the, from the lion image, we get this idea of a ferocious, noble creature. But what does the lamb make us feel? Well, let's uh, read on in verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom of priests and to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And so it becomes clear here that this root of Jesse, the lion and the lamb, is Jesus, who came to earth as a man and he faced the slaughter. Why? In order that we might be purchased by his blood to be a kingdom of priests and to reign. I don't know if you've ever thought of of us as a kingdom of priests. 
Um, so this metaphor of Jesus as a lamb points to the fact that he is the final and all-encompassing sacrifice for the rebellion of humanity. Lambs in the Old Testament were sacrificed to atone for the sins of Israel. And now Jesus dying is the final atonement for all. And it's magnificent. The lion is the lamb. And so we've moved from these prophetic metaphors in Isaiah to this incredible revelation that Jesus is the lion and the lamb, the ferocious warrior leader and also the sacrifice. But how do we fit into this picture? Well, verse 9, that's us, as I mentioned before. Um, With your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and nation. That's us. Jesus died on the cross that we might take on our full identity as royalty over this new earth. Now, royalty is a kind of an interesting term for us because we don't live with that as as a reality. We might think about it as as some fictitious show called The Crown or something. Um, But it's actually not like that. It's like ruling in God's perfect great kingdom. And what an incredible privilege that's going to be. And so we've spent a lot of time thinking about the new creation now and thinking about what's to come. But what about now? Like, how do we live in light of that new creation now? Well, we're going to finish in Romans 8, where Paul uh, wrestles with this very topic. He talks about the now. So verse, uh, chapter, Romans chapter 8, verse 19 says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So Paul highlights for us the relationship between us and the restoration of creation. When we take up our place, when our adoption is complete, the creation will be simultaneously liberated at the same time. It's connected. The creation is groaning and looking forward to this day. And what's more, we are inwardly groaning. And it's this kind of deep physical yearning for the new creation that Paul talks about. So I want to ask you, uh, do you feel this inward groan? As the creation around us groans, do you groan inwardly, longing for this um, new creation to come? And are you looking forward to being royalty in this beautiful new creation, this place of radical peace? Where it's so peaceful that a child can play with vipers and lead wolves. And where Jesus, the Lion of Judah, and the Lamb who was slain, rules. And we can see him. Uh, If you're like me, perhaps you don't think about this enough. I find that I'm often overwhelmed thinking about the idea of the new creation, that I don't really dwell on it. It's too big. Um, However, in preparing this sermon, uh, I've learned that these metaphors really help. Because whilst we can't... Uh, it's hard to picture the specifics and everyone can debate and talk about what's, what's it actually going to look like in the new creation. Uh, but what these metaphors do is they help us to feel 
what it's going to be like. Uh, we get this idea of radical peace that we can't even imagine. Like We, we, we get to understand a smidge of what it's going to be like. And isn't that really exciting? And so I thought um, maybe just take a moment now and reflect on the new creation. Um, think of these metaphors that you've heard. The radical peace from Isaiah of the child sitting there uh, with the animals. And then think about Jesus, the lion and the lamb. Powerful, sovereign, but also the lamb that was slain for you upon the cross. And so I just want to give you a moment to dwell on that. So as we head towards Christmas, um, I pray that you'd have a a new understanding from dwelling on these metaphors. Um, For Christmas is when Jesus came into this world, as we know. And it's a critical moment on the path of our adoption uh, as children of God and the restoration of creation. Um, So I, I pray that we might all reflect on this inner groaning and we might feel it. Um... I pray that we might long for this deep peace that we've seen today. And I hope it might uh, cause us to want to share it with our families and friends this Christmas time. Uh, Might we share that Jesus came to earth born as a child so that we might know him. And if we trust in him, one day we'll be restored as royalty in the new creation.